hppodcraft.com. Okay, ready? The pool, I'm ready. The pool. The job site was beautiful in this early morning sun. Daryl's crew was up in the hills of Marin, working behind an upscale development. The grassy slopes blaze in the slanting light. Great stately oak trees perched here and there on the rolling terrain. A scattered multitude that bestrode the slopes like gnarly titan surfers perched on a golden tsunami. But down in this pit for a swimming pool, Daryl, carrying 50 years and wielding a 40-pound air hammer with a dirt chisel, was feeling he'd irrevocably run his life into the ground. That was the opening of The Pool by Michael Shea. Just your typical fun-in-the-sun kind of tale, except with some amorphous otherworldly monsters. And we're going to talk about it here on the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey. We're here at hppodcraft.com and Patreon. Once again, we are joined by a special guest. Yes, he's the host of the podcast He Said, Shea Said, <laughs> as well as its spinoff, uh, Roll in the Shea. And Murder Shea wrote, ladies and gentlemen, Pat Oswald. Hi, everybody. <laughs> and thank you to all my other listeners that have joined me here today. It was the backdoor pilot, and it worked out. Yeah, you can have those really spin-off was. shows that, yeah, yeah. that are totally real as well. Uh, well, we're continuing our examination of author Michael Shea's Lovecraftian mythos stories using the anthology Copping Squid. We've uh, just been going down the table of contents and have arrived at this story, The Pool. Uh, but before we jump in, I know that you got to know Michael Shea a bit uh, before he passed away. Is, is that right? How did you get to meet him, or what was your uh, relationship like? I had been um, extolling his virtues online. I had optioned his short story, The Extra, to try to turn it into a film. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. uh, just over the years, we, we started, I guess he finally got email near the end. So we started emailing him, and he was visiting Burbank, and I was living in Burbank, so I took him to lunch at Chili John's and <laughs> talked to him about his life. And then he went. He lived in Healdsburg, California. I was going to try to go up there and visit him, and then unfortunately he passed away, which oh, okay. really sucks. But yeah. Was, was it an uh, easy lunch? I mean, easy to hang out with? He was Ken- such an easy hang. He was like, he, he kind of was like this old... Kind of like an even more, how do I put it? Kind of reminded me of Tommy Chong. Not that he was a stoner. I think he was very, very clean. I think he'd had some drug problems early on in his life or something. He had a very interesting life. He was very, very into like physical fitness though and health, but he was this leathery old guy with a white beard, mm-hmm. really good looking. It's like Silver Fox. You know what he looked know what he reminded me of? The most interesting weird writer in the world. That's what he looked like. You know? Stay frightened, my friends. Like he, that's what he looked like. Yeah, he was a good looking dude. Cool. The protagonist in the story, I think, seems kinda like what what Michael Shea would seem like from what I've I've read he, about him. There are a bunch of his protagonists, especially protagonists that do a lot of physical labor yeah. and do... He did a lot of, like, blue-collar stuff. I mean, Uncle Tug is basically... He clearly knows how to saw wood and you know, stack it and stuff like that and build <laughs> things. So, you know, he really knew that stuff firsthand. Right. And this, yeah, this definitely feels like Shea. Yeah. Niftaline gets in that a lot, too, about, like, as you get older, the best thing you can have is your health, like, really revel in being strong and being healthy. Mm. Yeah. I got to take that to heart. <laughs> Me too. Geez. Oh, yeah, I definitely do. <laughs> I was kind of intrigued going into this story by the use of a swimming pool as a setting or, or device, as with Shay's jacuzzi work that we've encountered <laughs> in the past. You know, having a private swimming pool is kind of a hallmark of wealth or status. But I think maybe there's a crazy, but I feel like there's almost an evolutionary drive for people to want to have a pool. It's like I want to be able, whenever I want, to go into my backyard and return to my amphibian origins in, in a way. <laughs> maybe. Maybe what? it's just me. I don't know. <laughs> That's just you, man. Well, I don't know. Any feelings about swimming pools? Any memories of swimming pools? It seems like it's something. everybody's got something in their past. I just remember a friend of mine had... I was at a, a, a friend's swimming pool party 
No, it was my friend's friend's swimming pool party, and the host of the party, she was swimming around in the pool, and I was swimming around with her, and her boob popped out. And she didn't she didn't see it. Or she didn't, I don't know how you don't know your boob popped out. And I was like, Maureen, your boob's out. And she goes, oh, sorry. And, put, and forever, that's just in my, it wasn't erotic. It was just odd to me. Yeah. I remember being in, like, pools at night when the light's on. My grandparents in Arizona had a pool, and so we're down swimming at night, and then my brother was in the end of the pool, and he, like, he wasn't trying to be weird. He just put his hand in front of the light because he was swimming in front of it, and it looked like this creature blocked out the light for a second, and it really... Stuff underwater when it's dark really, oh. really frightens me. Yeah. Stuff coming out of the darkness. That's good and scary. Yeah, yeah. This story was originally published in Weird Tales in 2007, huh. but there are answering machines and fax machines in it. I assume it was written about a decade earlier just from some of the technology. Right, right, yeah. Uh, but let's dive in. What do you think? Sure. Yeah. The story begins with our protagonist, this guy, Daryl, who's a 50-year-old man working a construction job. He is happily divorced, 12 years, and he let his wife have the house and the stuff so that he's kind of has this slimmed-down lifestyle. He lives at a cheap residence hotel, but he likes his easy and simple life. That comes up a lot in Shea stories, too, is people that have, like, how much can I strip away of all of the trappings and hassles of modern life and live super, super uh, stark and slim down. Yeah. And here it says, he, you know, he lives a no-maintenance life. And also there's something about, you know, he enjoys the manual labor, the digging in the earth, uncovering the compacted secrets the earth conceals. Even though it's a repetitive job, yeah. there's something about it that right. that is simple and that he enjoys. I think it's a great place to start a character. Yeah, He's trying to save up to buy a house and retire, but that means doing construction jobs for another 10 years. And manual labor gets a lot harder the older you get. Yeah. I was really impressed by that first paragraph we heard just the verb usage when it says he is carrying the 50 years rather than just that he's 50 years old well not only that but look at the descriptions of the surrounding flora the trees bestriding the hills like surfers it's free and moving and then he is in a hole like he's already in his grave in a weird way like yeah. he's oh, good point. now heading and it's such an abrupt cut where he ends the first paragraph is so poetic and gorgeous uh, Titan surfers perched on a golden tsunami and then suddenly that goes but down in this pit for a swimming pool he's now it's not poetic mm. he's on the job it's very very technical I got a 40 pound air hammer with a dirt chisel it's all business he is not part of the blazing youth of the summer anymore no. yeah, which wow. was such a great transition yeah I felt that affected me because I just was at the doctor recently and I got my, they did my height and I'm a little shorter than I was the last time they yeah, did it. Yeah, gravity gets time. to have its way with you. Wow. You really are carrying the longer those, on the those yeah, exactly. you know? oh, It's pushing man. you down. Oh. So he and his crew are working up in Marin. That's where Skywalker Ranch is, right? Yes, and it's also where all of the rich people in San Francisco go to live. Oh, you, you go to San Francisco, you make your tech money, and then you move up to Marin and it's... You know, it's lit. I think it's where the term limousine liberal came from. Oh, really? I think it came from, or at least that type of hippie. Yeah. The, the hippie that made a billion dollars doing organic juices and is now being driven around. So this crew, they're on a super hard schedule trying to get this job done. It's a typical situation in which the boss has promised more than the crew can probably deliver because he's not the one that really has to do the work. So he just cracks the whip and expects them to make miracles happen. This boss is called Mike Love, and he is standing with a client, this Miss uh, Robodeau, and he's chanting her up. He's being very charismatic, very charming, and kind of overseeing these guys in the hole working to install her new pool. The name was ringing a bell for me, and then I realized that Mike Love was, a, he's a founding member of the Beach Boys. Yeah, I mean, the only significance I can think of that is that Mike Love is notoriously a douchebag oh. and is not a good person <laughs> and really just 
kind of is living off a legacy that maybe he doesn't really deserve. So here's oh. a guy making other guys do the work, and he's making the money. So. Uh, okay. That's funny yeah. because when I looked him up in, on his Wikipedia page, one of the very first sentences called him the antagonist of the Beach Boys, mm-hmm. as if within the band, you know, he's like the villain. <laughs> yeah. But they can't get rid of him. I think he still performs. So. Oh, yeah, exactly, because he, uh, he, again, some kind of like, yeah, bought his, uh, who knows. I just know that he's not a good guy. <laughs> the crew is keeping the schedule and just finishing up the hole when this guy, Raj, who's described as a guy too fat for an undershirt that always wore one. He's goofing. Oh, around. that's such a great. Oh, <laughs> yeah, it's perfect. You know that. It's I a see quick it. visual. I see it, yeah. I've, that's been me, man. Yeah, and I've yeah. also been that guy. Sure. Yeah. I'm that guy. Uh, so he's goofing around and he takes a big clot of dirt and he slam dunks it into the scoop on the backhoe. But when he lands, he slips and he falls. He goes, My foot, my fucking foot. And he screams and he tells everybody he stepped in a hole. His foot broke through the ground. The crew look around, but they can't find a hole. Not only does Raj's foot and ankle hurt, but they also burn. It says it looks wet, a thin, viscous sheen on the boot, the sock, and the ankle. And this viscous sheen is Emilio Estevez's other brother. That's yes. right. Yeah, yeah okay. he did not go into films. He, uh... Uh, he does, he has a, weirdly enough, he has a mixed-use condo empire uh, that out right? in the, and down in El Segundo. Yeah, Sheen Towers. They're, they're really big. That's a family name, I think. Viscous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> Viscous. Well, they get, they get Raj to the hospital, but the foreman knows this is probably something we don't want to look into. There might be a pollutant or something down underneath where they're laying this pool in, and it's probably best not to dwell on it, just to pour the concrete and, and patch it up, cover it up, which is what they're going to do. And this is actually, for me, was the first bit of horror in the story because occasionally it strikes me, you know, we go about life just assuming that people who build the things we use or the buildings that we're in are good people who are taking care of us and doing their jobs to the best of their abilities. Why do we think that? Uh, yeah. yeah, this really taps into everyone's latent fear of contractors and subcontractors. <laughs> <laughs> and that is, a, that is a big 21st century abiding terror. Mrs. Robodeau comes out and she asks Mike Love if the pool will be done by the time she gets back from Nice uh, next week. And Mike assures her that it will be. And then this really strange thing happens. Mike Love says, oh, boy, I've having problems with these suppliers and things. I've got this fax from one of them. And, you know, you should just read the crazy stuff that they write here. Why don't you read this for me? And so he gives it to her and she reads it out loud. And it's, you know, it's it's Yogg-Sothri. It's the Ia Fia Thiagan Thulu Ia Shagor. So it's spelled out kind of phonetically instead mm-hmm. of as we would normally see. Right. Because you hear her read it out loud. Right. right. And she says, oh, his fax must have gone bonkers. So... Mike Love is handing her this to read it, obviously intentionally. So is Mike Love a cultist? I don't know. These are not good vibrations. (laughs) I'm just saying they're definitely not good vibrations. Well, again, we have this idea of getting people to do weird chanting against their will. Right, right. I mean, is there some kind of power, do you think, in tricking somebody else into saying these words rather than just doing it yourself? Or it keeps you out of danger in some way? Oh, maybe. Yeah, that. Hmm. Because that's what what our uh, guy did in the last story. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Maybe I never thought of that. Maybe it's from, maybe it's like the fact that you need to do these words to invoke them and you're going to get their attention, but you don't want that attention necessarily focused on you. Yeah. Wow. You want it on somebody else because they might eat them or they probably will. The result of the story well, follows yeah. along with what you're thinking. Yeah. Wow. Well, so after Daryl leaves the dig site, we learn that he's staying at the Hyperion Hotel in the Mission District where he gets free room and board for working the cage, basically buzzing residents in and out. He can do oh. this until around 3 a.m. when folks are coming home from the bar he gets a little shut eye and then he wakes up again to buzz in folks who are coming back from the night shift in the early morning. 
uh, before he has to go back to his day job. But before he starts his work, he goes in, takes a shower in one of the shared bathrooms. And while he's in there, he thinks he hears somebody whispering behind him, just over his shoulder. Two words he can't make out. And when he gets out of the shower, as he's getting dressed, he sees in the window something like half a face, like a giant's face in the window, whispering two syllables to him, and then it just disappears. It's a pretty creepy scene, and I, I was thinking, do you ever have a hallucination like that? Because that's what he assumes it is, just a hallucination, because he's overtired. Yeah, I mean, I, I've been overworked and, like, woken up in a hotel room when I'm on the road, and I know, oh, what, where the hell am I, you know? But that is no. But never giant a face, face at the window whispering. No. no, haven't gone that no, far. No, has happened to me. My friend, uh, when I worked in a warehouse when I was a teenager, my friend Lyle Erickson, who's, yeah. who's done music for the show before, we were both playing in a band and not getting a lot of sleep and then going and doing this day job. And one time he was running the forklift in the candy aisle or something, and he saw Count Dracula at the end of the aisle. Like, full-on cape. Medallion? The medallion that he won for something we never know what it is. Everything about Dracula, the Widow's Peak. Wow. He just saw it. He's tired. He's overworked. But why this hallucination? He goes into a little room and he sits at a typewriter. Right, he's got an old college friend, Brad, who's been giving him copywriting work from his company, uh, looking to maybe ease him back into the white-collar type of job full-time because Daryl used to be a copywriter. Mm -hmm. He takes Daryl's typewritten sheets and scans them into the computer for him. So Daryl's kind of a Luddite. He prefers to do the copy editing mm -hmm. on, the, on the typewriter. So this is another job he has. In the time between his day job and the night job that he does for the hotel, he's doing this copywriting. He's filled every moment of his life with work. Mm. This felt to me like a very, very modern... A, it's, this is a thing that's going on right now. It's what everyone's doing. They're filling every free minute of their time your, your car is a taxi your house is a hotel how yeah. can you keep making money because there's no safety net anymore but this is I think Shay's modern equivalent of the Lovecraftian uh, protagonists who have kind of removed themselves from society like he's this guy isn't really out interacting in bars dating mm. he's just working yeah. and there's nothing else in his life and that's how he likes it Makes you wonder how happily divorced he is. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Mm. So there is something kind of sad about this guy. There, there's a desperation in his stripped downness. Well, again, this part made me think of Shay. Like the fact that he has this blue collar job, but he's also writing. And, right. You know, yeah, it, yeah. It really feels like it's a, a version of him. Yeah. Well, right now, the job he's got, he's working on a manual for an answering machine called the Messenger 2020. Uh, just reading that kind of made me miss answering machines, you know, just because it was at home, you know, so you'd go home and check it. You didn't carry it around with you. So. Right. <laughs> you miss it. I miss it a little bit. Yeah. But well, also people can get a hold of you at any time. And that is a drag. And then maybe there's something in the in the thing that this is called the Messenger 2020. Like, is there something <laughs> Thulean in that, or oh, who yeah. knows? Oh, I, you right. know, right. yeah, yeah. Well, he kind of dissolves into his copywriting work for a while, but then he has another hallucinatory vision. Hanging outside the window, a pale face, a face entire and man-sized, hanging within a sixty-foot pit of empty darkness, gazing in at him. There was that lantern jaw, a mouth slightly agape, and black eyes wide, aghast. This thing, this face mouths those syllables again and disappears. And he doesn't exactly question his own sanity, but he thinks maybe something is bubbling up from his memory, trying to tell him something. In a way, he actually feels kind of excited about these hallucinations, strangely. So we jump ahead to 2.45 a.m. when most of the people have come in for the night. So normally he gets some sleep for about four hours, but tonight he's freaked out. He's concerned about that hallucination, obviously. Fear cruised his thoughts like sharks. Fear for his aging body. Fear for his perhaps too isolated mind dawned on him that we were sunk in our minds after all, and a vision seized us really took hold of us? How were we to save ourselves? That is such a the nub of the Lovecraftian cosmic terror right there. Yeah. It's, it's really well written. If our thoughts start eating us alive, we're doomed. Yeah. <laughs> 
He gets some sleep and then he wakes and reviews his copywriting while uh, he's buzzing the night shift tenants in. He catches something in his pages that he doesn't remember typing. It says, the messenger 2020, get one, also features a <laughs> get one. Yeah, get one. He finds it a few more times in the manuscript. Get one, get one, get one. It reminded me of Kevin Nealon's old bit that he used to do with a Mr. Subliminal. Yeah. When he would slip in, he'd say, hey, nice to meet you, hot sex. I'd, I'd like to. Right, right. <laughs> Later, hot sex, we can talk. He's quickly able to fix the mistakes. His buddy Brad comes in, picking up the writing, and he asks Brad, can I have one of those answering machines? Although Brad knows nobody calls him, as you guys said, he's kind of hiding from life, mm-hmm. uh, and urges him, break out, stop being an isolated hermit, you know, come work at this company instead of doing this. Later that day, Daryl is working in the pool again, digging ditches, laying pipes. He's still freaked out by the visions, but working helps it feel more distant. When he does think of that face he's seen, he kind of recollects that it's a writer, maybe? Something from the weird stuff he read in college? A, a face on a battered old paperback, perhaps? <laughs> <laughs> Judy Bloom? Yes, it's Judy Bloom. <laughs> Brad comes over that night and installs the machine. Shouldn't Daryl know how to do this since he wrote the manual? Oh. <laughs> yeah, you're right. He should know this. He's willfully not moving into the present, I think. He, he wants to stay in a kind of frozen moment in time. All right. Maybe from 12 years ago. Brad and Daryl, they go to the Silver Dragon and have some coffee. Daryl tells him, He's pretty much ready to take that copy editing job, but he's hesitant because it's a big life change. And he starts thinking about this vision again and how it seems to be some kind of calling or a prophecy, like he's supposed to do or see something. He goes home, and fortunately, there's no message on the machine. It's unclear what sort of message he's expecting, but that Saturday, Daryl's about to go out, and his manager at the hotel asks him to take a couple of boxes of old paperwork down to the office. And this is a joke between them. The office is the old dusty room off the main entrance where they keep the personal effects left behind by tenants who have departed one way or another from the hotel. So he goes into this room with the boxes, and it's dusty and creepy in there. He gets uh, the danger sense going all of a sudden. Something is up. There's something off. So he puts the box down on the table, and then he hears a soft crash somewhere else in the storage area. So he checks it out, and it's just somebody's old box. There's some clothes, a toothbrush, odds and ends. But then there's a copy of At the Mountains of Madness, and he turns it over, and there's a picture of Lovecraft on the book, and it reminds him of the face that he saw on the window. So he just sits down, and he reads the book there. So this kind of took me back a bit. So the face that he's been seeing is Lovecraft's face? Maybe Lovecraft is communicating with him because of all the people. This guy is living the life that Lovecraft most understands and would be comfortable with. So he's thinking, oh, this is clearly a a mature and intelligent human being that I can communicate with. I I don't know. It's a little weird. I I, I was wondering, is it... I mean, is Lovecraft's ghost floating around (laughs) in, you know... It could be. Like the Wizard of Oz or something, you know, in by this window. Or is it his own memory? He knows that there's something he needs to do. Oh, Daryl's memory. Whatever it is, it's calling to him. He's like, I'm, I read this before somewhere. Because there's he found this story in particular mm. at the Mountains of Madness. Right. And so whatever it is that's occurring to him is related to that. And Lovecraft and Shay's fiction in this book is sort of a prophet yeah. of these things. So it, maybe it's his own hallucination just to deal with, with right. what's going on. But after reading it, he feels even more that he's been singled out for some type of revelation. So he goes to the skyscraper bar with some of his work buddies and they tell him that Roger, that's the guy that got his foot hurt, it looks like he actually got second degree burns on his foot from going into a hole. And Mm. Mike Love offered him 15 grand to say that he got hurt off the job. And of course, Roger jumped at the offer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can't refuse an offer like that. And then for whatever reason, Mike Love really wants that pool to get done. So on the way home, Daryl thinks that it's weird that Mike Love would give two shits about subcontractors. But then he remembers 
what he had Amy read by the pool, Shaga-thoi, Shaga-thoi. Yeah, and in Mountains of Madness, they talk about the Shagas, and one shows up at the end of that story. Yeah. So he's making that correlation. And when he gets home, again, no messages on the new answering machine. Hmm. So he spends the next five days with the crew finishing up the pool. They lay the concrete, and they're getting it ready for all the tiling and the kind of the decoration stuff. Still no messages over the week, but he's patient. He knows the impossible will come to call. The impossible had chosen him for something. And what an odd, dark happiness that gave him. <laughs> I felt like, you know, hey, you know what? It's great to just be chosen for something. It is nice. Come on. <laughs> Even if it's cosmic terror, it's still, look, they picked me out. They something's picked going me. On. I'm yeah, special. Yeah. Come Saturday, he meets up with the guys at the bar again, and they talk more about Roger and what exactly happened to him. And they go, you know, there was no hole. We looked. There was nothing there. So how did his foot get burned? And they mull it over, but of course nothing is resolved. Daryl goes back to his place, and then there finally is a message on his machine. The pool. The pool. See and know. And then there's also an unspoken word. Now. Do it now. So he runs back to the bar, and Don and Toby are still there. Daryl asks Don if he can borrow his truck, and he offers to buy them beers for another three hours in return. For another three hours. And I, I thought that was a funny moment. Toby says, we haven't been here drinking for three hours. But Daryl knows they have because he was there earlier. And just the denial of that was very human to me. It was like a nice moment. Toby. <laughs> Daryl tells them something is going on at the pool tonight. And he, he said he's going to go there with or without them. And that has got them hooked. And I love this. Like I feel this felt very real to me. Like if one of my friends came in and go, look, I can't explain it. I've got to go to this place and see this thing. I'm going to go there without you. I'd be like, well, what is it? And he, I don't know, but I got to go look. And I'm like, okay, yeah, let's go. I want to see what this thing is. That's yeah, whatever it was, I, I couldn't stop being curious. I wouldn't be able to refuse it either. They drive up to the house, park away from it, and sneak around back. The first thing they notice is that the pool is finished, filled with sparkling water, and there's a party going on in the house, and they just can't believe it. Never a good thing when there's a party near the end of a horror story. Nope. Obviously the outsider, those kinds of things. But I was also thinking of the pool party. Isn't that a pool party in Nightmare on Elm Street 2 that just goes horribly awry? (laughs) Something, yeah. (laughs) Amy, Mrs. Robidoux, she slips out of the party in a black one-piece swimming suit, and she's unnoticed by the other people at the party. We switch to her perspective for a moment. Uh, She's excited to feel the silkiness of the water in the pool. She thinks of it as her secret baptism. And she cannot believe Mike Love got the pool finished. He must have used some kind of exotic water as well. It's very strange. She describes it. So limpid, but at the same time so textured with little cross currents, so veiny with exquisite snaky little filaments of bubbles. This silvery, shuddery stuff wasn't just water. It was the kind of water only some people could afford. A prized possession, rich and strange. Boy, does he nail that whole San Francisco wealth. There, you know, there was that thing where people were drinking raw water up there, this expensive, unfiltered, it doesn't go, it's like right from the river, and they were selling it for like 60 bucks a gallon at what? the Rainbow Co-op. All these tech billionaires were buying it. It's like, what? yeah, don't, we got to have off-the-grid water, not the stuff that goes to that yucky city filtration system. <laughs> I want it straight out of the river. Like, oh. all this, you know, whatever, how can I keep showing oh. how elite I am? That wow. is such, that is Wrong. so perfect. What? Yeah, and I, and I started to think, even though our protagonist isn't the one that's doing any of these things, he's much more of a witness in this story, uh, is this a class revenge tale? I mean, are we supposed to savor the fact that this person feeling like, I've got something exclusive that nobody else has, we know it's not going to turn out well, yeah, right? Yeah. So, yeah. It's almost a revenge tale for those of us who aren't in that social yeah. status as we it read could this. be. Yeah. She stands by the pool and jumps in, but there is no splash. 
She just slides in and stops under the water, frozen in place. The water then moves up like a big jello cube and pushes her up 15 feet above the lip of the pool, all abyss style. <laughs> the liquid mass is not just the water, but the pool itself. The chrome ladder, the tile deck, all of it, it comes up and then they see what they had left just the day before, which is just a concrete to give the structure of the pool. Right. And then suddenly she's plunging across the deck toward the glass doors and the party. And we switch back to the perspective of Daryl and his pals who move down closer in amazement. And there's this great line here. They were six eyeballs. That's all there was to them. Yeah. <laughs> Tells I mean, you everything. Yeah. Yeah. It's just too much information. It, that's exactly what that sensation feels like. Before the water even slams into the glass, Mrs. Robodeau gets it because the thing splits into two wings. And when it does, it splits her in half as well yeah. as the water separates. And then, bam, through the glass and into the party. Man, she was having fun, fun, fun till Shogoth took her uh, party away. <laughs> anyway, go ahead. It fills yes. up the house. So the guests look like they're in some kind of underwater grotto. Would you say that they kind of catch a wave? <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no. It was a suspended subaqueous party now. Everyone's torpid gestures of astonishment seemed gestures of acclaim, of dawning rapture. Their martini glasses floated out of their loosening fingers. Their garments billowed like tidal life in the gentle currents of a primordial sea their bodies, they begin to cloud and distort. Their flesh melts away, bursts, their bones seep out of their clothes like smoke. And there's another great line here. Still, they all moved. Their clothes continued booging together for a while, still roughly assembled with the shapes of their vanished bodies. A relaxed party of tasteful casuals. Oh. I, I want to see this music video. Holy okay, Ghost, gotta get on this right away. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that is amazing. It really is. And it, and it brings me to mind of the first story of the collection, the way that they describe the... Remember the woman that gets absorbed by Tishagawa and, uh, oh, oh, and, yeah, and they're yeah, yeah, all yeah, getting yeah. slowly dissolved? There was a pool going on in, in that as There's well. There's a jacuzzi. A jacuzzi. Oh, yeah. it was a jacuzzi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah. That's some of his finest jacuzzi work. <laughs> then it blasts through what's left of the wall and then back into the drain at the bottom of the pool and it's just gone. So our guys, they get a little bit closer to see that all the martini glasses and the clothes have been left behind. And they stand there just trying to process what it is that they saw. And then they think, well, wait a minute. That thing is under the ground now, the ground that we're standing on, and so they just get the heck out of there. They left the way they had come, downslope through the moon-silvered grass, and then back up toward the road. The night wind made the grass whisper against their legs and made all three feel, as if for the first time in their lives, the vastness of the night sky. Daryl, said Don. It didn't quite sound like his voice. Who told you about this? They kept climbing in silence while Daryl sifted through all he knew and all he didn't. They had reached the car again before he answered. I'm going to lay it all out to you. I'm not saying it'll make sense. I'm just going to share what I know, including what I know about Shogoths. And that's the end of the story. Yeah. When he says that, I guess he's going to tell them all he knows from Lovecraft's work about yeah. Shoggoths. Yeah. He's not really in the know the way some of the other characters we've met mm -hmm. in these tales are. And I wonder if he's going to tell them about the giant H.P. Lovecraft head that visits him occasionally <laughs> to whisper. Or is this just another recruit in that group uh, in the first two stories of the city walkers that are mm -hmm. going to assemble against Cthulhu and try to stop this invasion to see another... You know, was there a planned sequel cycle of stories to this book that Shay never got around to where they were all going to, you know, the blue-collar workmen? And yeah. and maybe uh, maybe the guy in the porn revenge story would be the high priest of the bad guys. Mm, yeah. They would have to do battle against him. Like, it seems like he's assembling both sides almost the way that Stephen King did in The Stand. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah it seems oh, like man. they're setting that up, but that obviously never yeah. really came no, I'd like to see that. 
Well, so we have the thing earlier where Mike Love has the woman read the the chanting. Mm-hmm. But the thing that's introduced here is that somebody has to witness what happens. There has to be a witness. He's compelled to go look at it. Something otherworldly is forcing him to go do that. And I don't know if that's part of Mike Love's plan or... Or was it part of... But then again, but isn't Lovecraft telling him to go? We don't know what Lovecraft well, we don't is know. saying. Oh, yeah, that's right. We yeah. don't know what he was saying. Maybe he was trying to stop it. I don't know, but he gets oh, the uh, HP, message help on us. His, help us, HP. <laughs> You're the, our only hope. The message does say to go and witness. And that's a common theme in these stories. In Comping Squid, we had that as well. Yeah. And the other stories where it was... Oh, that's right. For people to see. They need to see these things. And I think that was in the last story as well too yeah but why is that important what what do the gods or is it maybe humanity needs to witness it so that they can combat the gods what's so or important do these about gods it? or do the gods think that by witnessing it the word will be spread and humanity will just completely surrender and they will have dominion over all through the sheer terror of what they are hmm I don't know. That, that's that's a good question. Yeah. That's a very good question. One I don't have an answer to. <laughs> <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> no, but uh, we will explore it more in the in the next story that we're going to do. I know I I'm looking at these beautiful boxes right now. Uh, they're called the Ghost Box. The Ghost Box. Tell me about these. These Adam. are two anthologies that I've edited for a company, a Canadian company called Hingston and Olson, and they do an amazing thing every December called the Short Story Advent Calendar. Twenty-five collected short stories by authors that you know and don't know mm-hmm. that you can discover a story for every day that you open. So I love these things so much that I contacted them, and then we started doing this thing. We've done two of them now. We're doing a third one this October. It's mm-hmm. called the Ghost Box Eleven short stories by authors old and new mm-hmm. um, with an introduction by me and it's a gorgeous design a little magnetic cover that opens up each of the stories is in a little pamphlet form mm-hmm. with a really cool illustration on each one that kind of says symbolic what, what the story is about and I just love the Hinkson and Olson company is such an incredible publishing outfit and uh, so we're doing our third collection this October they're beautiful I, yeah. I can't wait to dig into them there's a few stories that we've covered on this show that are included in there but yes. a, a bunch that we haven't so I'm looking forward to with reading some, it and I was showing you there's some authors you've never heard of yes, so right, I was yeah. very excited for you to maybe read those and go oh we need to start looking at these people mm-hmm. yeah lots more to discover yeah. well, we'll link out to that in the show notes because I really think listeners of the show are going to want to pick those up yes it's good stuff well and you, you don't want to pre-order the third one because the, these things sell out so you want to grab it in demand in demand well with that i want to thank Patton for joining us and talking more shay thank you and please listen to some of my other uh new shay podcast coming up uh shay's gotta have it um shay's having a baby and uh shay anything so those are <laughs> nice. those are about to launch and we're very very excited Whoa. and of course my new uh Michael Shea-focused uh, fitness podcast, Shea Hulk. So we are <laughs> very, very excited, and we hope you tune in, and please go to the Patreon page. Uh, it's only $500 a month to get wow. you this great content. It's a deal. That's yeah, a, You get a lot of content for yeah. that, yeah. so it's worth it. So just keep poking around on the internet, and eventually you'll find that stuff. Yeah. And that's all we've got uh, for this episode. Thanks for, so much for tuning in. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackey. And I'm Pat Oswalt. Oh, and I'm Patton Oswalt. Why do I keep forgetting? I'm sorry. I'm Patton Oswalt. Oh, God. <laughs> and you've been listening to the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com. hppodcraft.com. <laughs>